In the 20 plus years of helping people plan for the cost of retirement and long-term health care, we've identified one consistent theme among families and caregivers. People don't like to talk about money. Life care affordability planning helps families who are facing long-term health issues and increasing health-related expenditures to make better informed financial decisions during a time when there are so many unanswered questions. It's time to face this topic head-on, address the emotional charge of discussing money, and discover practical ways to bridge the gap between a long-term health care plan and your ability to pay for it. Hello and welcome to the Life Care Affordability Planning Podcast with Tom West and Arvet Reed from Signature Estate and Investment Advisors. Today, we're going to be talking about something that people don't talk about, and that's money. And it's an important conversation to have within families as, as people get older and health declines or other things come up in life. So good morning. How are you guys? Good morning, Eric. Hello there. Howdy, howdy. Okay, so where are we starting today with this subject of not talking about money? Well, when we're thinking about how the topic of money and personal finances impacts people that are facing chronic illnesses and whatnot. You know, remember that, that, that folks that are facing some of these illnesses that they need to plan ahead for, that's just a subset of the broader American population that's uncomfortable talking about money, period. And just a comment or two on that. I mean, part of what you see with a lot of personal finance literature and media, it, you know, speaking to a lack of financial literacy, one of the things that contributes a lot to a lack of financial literacy is just a, it, like a personal resistance to talk a lot about money. And I think one of the things that's important to recognize in American society is, you know, money is a topic that, that, that on a personal level, people feel very judged about. People feel very insecure about. They don't want to be second guessed. And when you're moving into a chapter of a family's life where things are changing quite a bit, that insecurity doesn't go away. Sometimes it's amplified now that they might be in a circumstance where the cost of care associated with the plan of care gets a whole lot more significant. They just might feel a little bit more vulnerable and there might be a default tendency to try to be protective about that information. Well, and to me, it's not even about the fear that someone's going to second guess them. They might just feel stupid about the topic altogether. I mean, there are just a lot of people out there that are uncomfortable talking about money at a basic level. You didn't grow up talking about it. You don't talk about it with your friends. So, you know, coming from the healthcare world and then jumping into the finance world, you guys talk about money all the time. You probably talk about money with your own families because you're finance professionals, but the rest of the world doesn't. Yeah, we're the weird ones. There's yeah. no doubt. But, and, and by you, the way, the flip side is true too, because I think sometimes there's a little bit of oversharing about yeah. what your health problems are or my health issues. <laughs> like yeah. I, I the, just going to the gym in the morning, the number of unsolicited news updates <laughs> that I have from the other guys in the locker room cleaning up, it's it's overwhelming in terms of all the information that I didn't need to know. So it's interesting, there's a convergence in terms of these different topic areas about challenges and in hopes and opportunities that people have about health and a complete resistance to talk about any of the different financial resources or decisions that people need to make that, that are required to be able to afford you know, the care needed for good health outcomes. And Tom, you, you alluded to culturally, right? And I think of it as generationally. My parents, as they have gotten older, when they were, when we were younger and they were younger, they didn't talk about money with us as kids or even early 20s. It's just something that they didn't do. So it was kind of taboo. 
Yeah, I think, and, and, and there is a generational component to it as well. I think that that part of, of just speaking, just a comment on generations, I think one of the things, for example, that that the difference between greatest generation and then boomers and then down to millennials, each of these generations have dramatically different outlooks for how they're going to be financing retirement and, and, and health care as, mm -hmm. as sort of a subset mm -hmm. of retirement. You know, as pensions get pulled away, you know, over the course of the last decade or two, you have this cohort of boomers that are all going towards retirement with the expectations that they're going to be able to spend and to live the same way that their parents did in retirement. But they don't have the same type of income. They don't have the same type of financial security that, that previous generation has. The lack of an ability to talk about money and to be self-aware of where you are in, in, in these different generational differences, that, that only exaggerates. And I think that the other piece too, Eric, that I think is, is important, particularly when you're talking inside the family, if you have two different generations that each have discrete reasons for not liking to talk about money, you know, that doesn't make the conversation flow anymore yeah. when you have different reasons that everybody wants to clam up about the topic. Well, I think for me, it's also back to the idea that we are adults and in our jobs, we have to talk about budgets and numbers and targets. And so we can talk about numbers in a sense from a professional standpoint. But when we go home, we're not talking about personal finances. So right. how do we help people understand that it's just as important to take ownership and responsibility for what's going on in your household and teaching those in your household as you would take in a professional work environment with your team. Right, right. So I think that one of the ways to, that we'd like to frame this and get back to how families need to talk about money in a different way when they're dealing with, with long-term care, I think that that there's this whole dialogue that we can have about how to improve financial literacy and communication. Mm -hmm. But we want to start, I think, with the, the the tail end of a lot of people's retirement where we sometimes have some attendant health care costs, because that's where I think that the population is sometimes the most vulnerable. And if you think of what are the implications of different families in different life chapters of not being able to talk about money? Well, sometimes it can be most severe at that tail end of retirement when there's changing health and there's changing decision making. Because if we if we make mistakes then about money, if we don't change the way that we think about cash flow or taxes or investments, then there might not be enough money to pay to take care of somebody. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what are the implications of that? Well, you're talking about people not asking for help, not getting the help they need. Maybe sometimes people have the ability to afford care, but because they don't have the capacity to talk about it, they don't get help that they would be able to just because they're, they're sort of intentionally blind to this as a topic. So our focus today is specifically on those families that have some transitions that involve money but are not about money and really, really want to sort of delve in a little bit more into some of the psychology on why this topic is so difficult. And then when you're thinking specifically about, for example, an individual who might have a family role of doing a lot of financial decision making, if it's the, the dad was the one that took care of the investments and the bills where mom had different type of responsibilities in their marriage or the family coming up, like what happens when dad's ability to manage personal finances 
becomes a little bit more compromised, you know, what are some of the reasons that dad might not want to talk about them? And we can explore that a little bit more. Have you got any thoughts on that and where people would start? You know, so you bring up a really interesting point, Tom, because when you're talking about someone who has had the primary role and then now they're have an illness, whether it's a dementia or whether it's just physical illness and they just can't deal with it anymore, that's really hard. It's hard for the person with the illness and it's also for the hard for their loved ones that are watching it, right? So let's talk a little bit about that person. Now all of a sudden something that they've done for a long time and maybe enjoyed doing, they can no longer do, but they haven't necessarily taught anybody else how to do it. Right. So now they're feeling vulnerable because they can't do it the way they used to. And now they're feeling guilty that they actually haven't talked to anybody else about how to do it. They're like having a plan B in place. Having a plan B in place. Yeah, they feel defeated. I I mean, I I assume you'd feel very defeated in that situation. Anxious. There's a bunch of it. And, you know, I think dementia is a subset of this group. You know, part Mm -hmm. uh, among the the, the laundry list of, of challenges that individuals are facing with dementia, a lot of this is fear of loss of identity. Mm-hmm. And if part of your family identity, my role as a, as a, as a father or as a husband or whatnot, is these are the things that I was taking care of. And I didn't talk about it. And before. I didn't talk about it before when I was taking care of, you know, it, it's, it's by being able to call attention to now an area where I'm less able, does that mean I'm a little bit less of who I was before? Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot of psychology going down that path of, you know, my changing and my my loss of identity with each of these different roles that I was playing being taken away. Mm-hmm. There's this whole attendance sort of who am I type of thing that sometimes is very correlated with depression right. with some of these folks. So sometimes, you know, the conversation about why you're not talking about money, uh, maybe it's a bigger thing than that. Maybe with dementia, it's, it's something that has a lot more to do with identity. It's a domino but effect. It, yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it very much can be. I think that the other piece too, individuals that have some illness that were primary decision makers, you know, they're also feeling very vulnerable, Eric, about people telling them what to do and responsibilities Mm -hmm. being taken away from them before they're ready to give them up. And maybe there's sort of an acceptance dimension to, you know, how self-aware I am in this situation. You know, denial is a really big deal with different parts of the population that needs some assistance with chronic illness. I mm-hmm. mean, that, that you can speak a little bit to that, Arvet, about just denial being a gigantic impediment for people asking for help. I think that when, when I'm thinking of denial, it's like, you know, I'm doing fine. I don't need any help as sort of a defensive mechanism where you're right. Maybe sometimes people are scrambling to figure out what to do next. Yeah. Well, and the other part of it is back to the idea of them feeling guilty is maybe they've also now realized because they've been in charge of finances that their healthcare situation is now costing way more than they ever anticipated. And it's also putting them in a position where they're not able to do the things that they thought they were able to, gonna be able to do for right. their loved ones. So that's another part of the guilt. The guilt could be, I, I'm not doing this as well as I used to, and now all those promises, like I promised I was going to take the grandkids to the beach, or I promised I was going to pay for the grandkids to go to grad school, or I promised my wife she was going to get that you know new car, whatever it is. Right. And you haven't, and since most likely the person hasn't been talking about money to anyone else, but they know that they're spending way more than they ever did before because of the healthcare need. Right. Right. And I think that's right. 
What about the just help, yeah. the, the fact that some of them probably don't even realize it. I think about my grandfather and how many times he told me the same story and mm-hmm. didn't remember that he'd actually already told me that. And you, you smile and you, <laughs> you listen and you, you, you know that you've heard it before and you just enjoy his company. However, he thinks he's telling you for the first time. So there, there may be just a lack of awareness that they don't have that same memory capability and they just don't know that they are not able to handle that, the finances anymore. And so they just yeah, don't Eric, do anything about that's it. That's the perfect timing because if no one in the family has talked about money prior to that point, there's no way grandpa's going to talk about money now. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's sort of an, there's sort of an inability to pivot, mm-hmm. you know, depending on, depending on, on, on ways, you know, we know, we know about brain function and neural pathways. And it, when people start thinking about a topic, about vacation, about money, about love, about kids, whatever it ends up being, there are patterns to thinking that groove, like like erosion on a riverbank. Mm. And if you've grooved one particular pattern for so long, it's very unlikely that you're going to you're going to be resistant to start thinking about something new. I, I think that because the financial realities of sometimes having to come up with fifty, a hundred, a hundred and fifty thousand dollars of new expenses to cover a period of care where professionals might be needed to help out in addition to standard of living, you know, that, that, that's a bandwidth problem mm-hmm. too, you know, not even speaking to dementia, which probably, you know, we can hover on a little bit more because you know, that that's actually, you know, physiological changes in the brain mm-hmm. and the way those pathways work just for folks that are, you know, are, 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 have, are, are neurotypical. That's one of my words I learned. Neurotypical. Ooh, neurotypical. neurotypical. Normal, normal brain function. <laughs> I think that, that, that for folks that don't have cognitive impairments, this might just be too hard. Yeah. You know, because, mm. you know, we, we have, we have multiple CFPs in our practice that are using, you know, 20 plus years worth of experience to do modeling on variable withdrawal rates because you don't know how long somebody's going to live and you don't know how much care they're going to need. Taking that from portfolios that are variable and tax policies that seem to change pretty regularly, like that's really hard. So sometimes there's a ceiling of complexity where people just lock up and they throw up their hands and say like, listen, I can't possibly keep track of all these moving parts. Therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to kind of roll over on the topic. Mm-hmm. And part mm-hmm. of, I think what we're really trying to let the audience know is that's that's part of where this life care affordability plan can I think can really be impactful. As we continue to discuss this, we're going to identify areas that you can really refine a lot of the assumptions about how much things are going to cost in a way that can support much more effective decision making. And sometimes coming back to the topic of the day, give people a new opportunity to talk about money in a different way. So I think that one of the things that, that I'd like to talk to a little bit more about the person with illness that, that, that has a little bit of difficulty talking about money is a privacy issue. You know, sometimes mm. the reason that people aren't talking about money, it's not the cost. Sometimes it's not the lack of identity. Sometimes it's, it's nobody's business. And this maybe gets a little bit back into Eric's generational idea. And, you know, when you start thinking about the way that, media has appropriately started putting more attention to identity theft, to Alexa's always listening, to, you know, elder financial abuse, these sorts of pieces. You know, folks are a whole lot more defensive about topics uh, associated with their finances 
just as a sign of the times. Like it doesn't matter what generation you are. In 2018, I've got to be much more protective of some of these personal information than than it might have been before. So that sometimes contributes to people's unwillingness to talk about money. And maybe there's a little bit of unwillingness. Like you know, this isn't this isn't my kid's business. This isn't my grandkids' business. I mean, I think that that most of the families that I've met in my life, professionally and personally. I think everybody is is a good person and tries to do their best. But sometimes the undercurrent of you know these are people that are just expecting a big legacy from me, or they're the ones that are telling me how not to spend money. So think there might be a bigger pot left over. That sometimes makes people feel real defensive on a privacy standpoint, and that might be one of the reasons that people don't talk about money as well. How but do again, you, go ahead, Eric. I was going to say, how do you get people past that trust issue? Because to me, it's, it all comes down to to trust and trusting your family, your children, your grandchildren to be able to have those conversations maturely. I don't even know how you would get somebody across that threshold. Well, I think at the end of the day, everybody wants what's best for the loved one. And what is the family and what is the person with the illness most hopeful for? So what we found like after 15 years in the healthcare industry is when a healthcare event happens, people rally Mm -hmm. and everybody wants to figure out what they're most hopeful for, what's best for grandma, what does she want or what is best for dad, what does he want? So if you can get everybody rallied around what they're most hopeful for from a, from a outcome perspective, stay at home, move, a cure, whatever it is, then the finances should follow that conversation. Yeah, I think there's some stories that we've got with with clients that 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 trust factor, Eric, has been so important. And it isn't just trust with professionals. Sometimes it's trust in a different way with your spouse or Mm -hmm. with your family. Mm -hmm. And and I I think that 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 trust thing, Arvette hit it on the head. The person that needs to establish trust in order to be more comfortable talking about money, you know, that person needs to be put in a position where they don't feel judged, where they feel like their wishes are going to be understood. It's really important when you're establishing trust to listen and not prescribe Mm -hmm. and not do counterpoints and to let somebody tell their story and to give that person time to have their opinion or the perspective, even if it's a goofy one, mm-hmm. sort of sit in the room and breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that I learned from a colleague of mine who's a neuropsychiatrist that that in, in that line of work, it's called a, a therapeutic alliance, where you want to make sure that the person who needs to establish trust to become a little bit more comfortable with financial topics, they need to have confidence that you're you have the same priorities that they do. You think that the the most important things are the same thing that they think are the most important things. So a lot of times dialogue with families has to do, you know, with identifying what's the new most important thing. And for sometimes that's, well, we need to make sure my wife stays home, regardless of what her medical condition is. We want to stay in the home that Mm -hmm. we've been together for 30 years. And that is the biggest priority. So. What I don't need is somebody really early in the conversation to say, like, time to move. There's no way it's going to work. Even if, by the way, even if it really is time to move, you can't establish trust if you jump right into prescribing. You actually have to to let them express what's important and work with them there. You got to go to where they are as compared to bring them to where you are. That makes sense. Okay, we've spoken a lot about the person with the illness um, and who's still the decision maker and how they don't want to talk about it. What about the rest of the family members? Yeah, when Tom mentioned some families that we've 
spoken with, one popped in my mind in particular, where this was a daughter who was the power of attorney for mom. And she really had done a very good job of trying to keep it all together. But she was extremely insecure about how she was doing and afraid that someone was going to tell her she had done something wrong. Mm. Like, you know, and so I remember being in that meeting and Tom and I mean, like, you have done an amazing job taking care of your mother and letting her know that we were there to support her from this point forward Mm -hmm. and that everybody else in the family that she felt was going to question that she hadn't done the right thing by mom. We could say she'd done the right thing by mom. Yeah, I think that it gets back a little bit into the judgment right. type of yeah. thing, right? Where where there's there's sort of a higher standard. Like, listen, I can screw up my own money, right? But if I'm if I if I'm if I'm managing the money of somebody Someone that else. I love and I care about, yeah. Okay, that that well, that's kind of especially that's kind of when more I'm not even comfortable managing my own money. <laughs> right, right. So, so I'm not really comfortable managing my money, and now I'm managing my mother's money, and I'm trying to do the best I can, but I'm really not quite sure what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that that's that's not the recipe for success in opening up a complicated financial yeah, discussion. Yeah. I think that's right. I think there's also something to be said for, you know, a sensitivity like sort of the flip side, Eric, of the discussion of of you know family roles. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people don't want to take that role away, you right. know, from from an individual that needs help. Listen, I can't do this to him. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I and we've had a lot of conversations with families along that those lines. Like, you know. Can can you maybe just help keep an eye on things so he yeah. doesn't you know we don't screw up things too bad? But listen, I I just I can't take that role away from him because it's it's too debilitating. Mm-hmm. It's, is it, it, is it, it just it, denial? Uh, it's not denial. I think it's an expression of love and support and being protective. Okay. And I think it's also a dynamic of family structure where you have the matriarch. Yeah. or the patriarch and you just that's the way it's always been yeah and i'm not disrespecting dad by saying he can't do the money yeah. even though he's sold exxon seven times today and let's be clear <laughs> we've had lots of females in here who have been managing their money oh, very yeah. well yeah. and they run into the healthcare issue where they just aren't managing it just as well so it's the same dynamic yeah, I, don't, I don't think you I, I ever think... shake that being a kid thing so right. like if you have your parents and they still have siblings that are alive those siblings, aunts and uncles, are going to second guess what you're doing. Your own siblings are going to second guess what you're doing if you if you have brothers and sisters that that mm-hmm. aren't taking the reins, and so there can be resentment there. I mean, I, I can't imagine the drama that this can all cause. Well, and in, 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 in the drama comes from a number of different ways. There are a number of different places. One of the main places is people are not looking at the situation through the same prism. Yeah, that's right. right. You know, it, you know, if I'm sitting here as an adult son and we're talking about my parents, I'm going to be looking at it entirely differently than my mom or my dad mm. or my uncle would look at it. So, so there's 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 all sorts of different narratives. We've, we've read books that says you know you're talking about the same event through the eyes of different characters. That's one of them. A second reason. That that these family dynamics are so important. They might not have the same information, mm-hmm. yep. and you know, our vet can talk a little bit about you know nobody knows what's going on with the plan of care, and right. if you don't know what's going on in terms of what the actual needs are going to be, then you can't have a functional conversation about money where there is an agreement about what the situation is to begin with. Right. If if we take it back to the the idea of us trying to help families by doing the life care affordability plan, where we're taking all inputs from a healthcare and financial perspective and putting them together. That is the exact scenario that allows us to get everybody in the family on the same page. 
But first, going back to the trust, you have to mm-hmm. have trust and you have to get the person with the illness and the information to open up about A, the healthcare side and B, the finance side. You then have to work with the family members or the other people that are involved in the conversation to just listen, like Tom said, without giving judgment, without trying to solve. Because then when everything's laid out on the table, it allows us to help the family really determine what they're most hopeful for and how can we go about mapping out these different scenarios so that they can make a decision with all the data, right? Right. Cause yeah. then what happens is you have the child who lives in California who calls in and says, mom and dad need to move right now. Yeah. And then you've got the child that's here. who's like, no, they're doing fine. We got the caregiver in and then the argument is, well, the caregiver is too expensive. It's cheaper if they move. And the whole thing spirals because everybody's looking at it from a different viewpoint, like Tom said. With yep. different information. Yeah. And I will, I, you know, and you, you did say, Eric, appropriately, you know, denial's still a big thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have had conversations where, like, listen, we don't need to talk about financing because dad doesn't need help. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, we've got to go back to the beginning. And, like, and, and that's where I think that the, the positioning of the service with the life care affordability plan, it starts with healthcare. It starts with an awareness and an acceptance of this is where I am. These are the kinds of things that we need. And then what are the subsequent decisions that involve money that need to be made to give me the best chance of taking care of the person that I love. But right. like, if you're not at the place of acknowledging that they need help, we're not going to get too far in the financial conversation either because that's going to sound prescriptive. It's right. going to sound yeah. like the reason we need to talk about it is because you can't manage yourself. Right. Yep. Tom and Arvette, I know that we're running short on time. What is our takeaway from today's podcast? Eric, the main takeaway is that we don't want to discount as professionals the challenges of just talking about the intersection of money and how it relates to healthcare decisions. You know, in our business, you know, even if you make fantastic recommendations about what to do with money, if those recommendations are never taken, yeah. then they don't matter. And it all comes down to effective decision making. Effective decision making is based on the right information understood by the right people at the right time. Mm. And that is all about communication. Mm-hmm. Next podcast, we're going to be talking about how professionals in the senior housing and healthcare industry have parallel have similar difficulties talking about personal finance mm-hmm. sometimes just with themselves but oftentimes how do i how do i talk to my potential clients or my potential residents about are you sure you're going to be able to afford that mm-hmm. you know please come back next time for the podcast to talk about that issue we've got a lot to discuss about how professionals themselves that are serving this population their inability to talk fluidly and literate about money is a major problem and one that we look forward to helping them, helping them solve. Okay, that sounds great. I'm, I'm going to ask a big favor. My takeaway from this podcast is that I'm, I'm going to need to have these conversations and I'm going to need some tools. Mm-hmm. Can we do a podcast about what tools and resources are out there for kids of you know, the sandwich generation, as, it, as it's called, of people that are aging and need to have that financial conversation with their parents? Oh, yes, absolutely. And that's me. I'm the sandwich generation. So I hear you, Eric. And that's definitely something that Tom and I are excited to put together for the listeners. 
yeah, I think that we're going to be balancing that also with some prescriptions and tips for professionals to better mm-hmm. be able to talk about household yeah. finances, how people pay for them. So I think that'll give a well-rounded attention on sort of the issues of, of financial conversations. And we're looking forward to that. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you everyone out there for joining us today on the Life Care Affordability Planning Podcast with Tom and Arvette. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way when Tom and Arvette come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. It also makes it much, much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. And especially today's topic, you know somebody that needs to hear this. So please do subscribe and share it. Thanks again for listening. For everyone at Signature Estate and Investment Advisors, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. We'll see you next time. Views and opinions provided herein are those of the individual speakers. All content is informational only and is not intended to be an endorsement or recommendation of any particular investment strategy or other course of action. Consult your tax, legal, and financial professions concerning your specific situation. Securities offered through Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated member FINRA slash SIPC. Advisory services offered through SEIA LLC. Royal Alliance Associates Incorporated is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products or services referenced here are independent of Royal Alliance Associates Inc. Life Care Affordability Plan is a marketing name for SEIA. Services related to evaluating the client's health care treatment plan are independent of and not endorsed by Royal Alliance Associates, Inc.